This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, September 18th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a Mississippi U.S. attorney announces a new campaign against domestic violence. Then the Public Service Commission subpoenas telecom giant AT&T over questions regarding broadband expansion in the state. Plus, how student leaders at two of Mississippi's public universities are serving as liaisons between administration and the student body in the effort to keep campus safe during the pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Families are staying home more during the coronavirus pandemic, and officials say this has led to a rise in domestic violence. In 2019, more than 10,000 calls were made to Mississippi law enforcement to report cases of domestic violence. U.S. Attorney of Mississippi's Southern District Mike Hurst says domestic violence continues to be an area of concern that has risen during the coronavirus pandemic. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, One in four women and one in seven men will experience physical violence by their intimate partner at some point during their lifetime. About one in three women and one in six men experience some form of sexual assault during their lives. Intimate partner violence, sexual violence, and stalking affect over 10 million people each year. And sadly, As you all probably know, during the coronavirus pandemic, with school closures, shelter-in-place orders, the mounting stress from loss of jobs and other economic opportunities, many cities around our country have experienced an increase in calls and an increase in cases of domestic violence. And I would imagine we here in Mississippi are no different. Hearst is working with Northern District U.S. Attorney Chad Lamar to curb domestic violence in Mississippi. Lamar says it's a problem that impacts all. As we were both uh, assistant U.S. attorneys, me in the Northern District and Mike in the Southern District of Mississippi, when we first took these offices, uh, Mike and I pledged to one another that we would take on issues jointly to do not what's best only for the Northern District or the Southern District, but what's best for the entire state. And, uh, you know, by working together with our federal, state, and local partners, there's really no limit to what we can do. We just have to put our mind uh, uh, to it. We know that domestic violence has and continues to be a tremendous problem in American society. It it, it is a significant issue, and it's a significant issue with ladies and and likewise with with men, although the vast majority of the victims we all know – are, are, are ladies. Also, in our Native American community, the statistics are even higher. Uh, a shocking four out of five American, Indian, and Alaskan Native women will experience some form of domestic violence during their lifetimes. While domestic violence affects both men and women, uh, many of the murders that are committed in the United States are the result of domestic violence, as, as Mr. Hurst said earlier. 
Um, but the impact on our children is so great. Those that abuse their intimate partners are more likely to abuse their children in their home. This has a significant impact uh, on our children, both physically and uh, psychologically. Together, the attorneys are launching an initiative to curb this public health crisis, Operation Phoenicia, which will work towards removing guns from the hands of abusers, is named after Phoenicia Ratliff of, of Canton, who was killed by her ex-boyfriend after reporting him for domestic violence. Her mother, Suzanne Ratliff, offers advice to people facing domestic violence with our Kobe Vance. She hid her pain. She hid it, you know, with a smile. So like I say, if you didn't know her, you would never knew that she was going through anything. She's always kept a smile. So, But I know deep down that she was really, really hurting. And so now they're using, uh, they've, they've taken your daughter's name and put it on a platform to be able to use that to uh, help other people that are in the same situation as her. What does that mean for you as a mother? Me as a mother, I'm overwhelmed about it. I'm so excited that they chose my daughter to name this operation after. I'm just happy about it because a lot of young people need to hear and know that before it's too late, they need to get out. So what have you been telling other uh, mothers, other daughters um, around the state, or even uh, just uh, men who are going through a, uh, domestic violence right now? What are you telling them uh, as far as um, what they should do? Seek help. Seek help immediately. Do not be afraid. Do not be scared to go to law enforcement. That's what they're here for, to serve and protect. So seek, uh, seek immediately help. Once the first sign of any type of abuse, you need to seek help. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Six million dollars in federal grants are going towards agencies and groups that help victims of abuse. Wendy Mahoney, executive director for the Mississippi Coalition Against Domestic Violence, says this funding will help victims seeking shelter and safety. Well, those federal funds come into our state and to our organization to help uh, expand our services and resources, um, meaning technical assistance and training. Um, currently, we're going to expand our efforts uh, for coordinated community response teams and looking at uh, effective uh, responses to domestic violence within the communities where our domestic violence shelter programs are throughout the state. So can you talk about the process of helping assist someone get out of the, get out from underneath the umbrella of domestic violence? Well, every situation is unique and different. Um, typically, an individual, once they make a decision that they want to leave the relationship, it's important to have a strategy in place, a plan of exiting the relationship. Because statistics show that an, it, once an individual chooses to leave the relationship, the abuser feels as though they're losing their power and control, and therefore... Um, the victim is at greater imminent danger when they're getting ready to leave. So we talk about educating individuals on what domestic violence is. We talk to them about their resources. How do you exit a relationship safely? And how do you gain yourself um, sufficiency and empowerment and uh, all of those things to be able to move forward again more successfully? U.S. Attorney Hearst says the presence of a gun during a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500 percent. 
Coming up, the Public Service Commission subpoenas telecom giant AT&T over questions regarding broadband expansion in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Malcolm White. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week we talk with visual artists, musicians, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Major telecommunications conglomerate AT&T has agreed to provide the state of Mississippi records detailing how it used the almost $284 million it was paid by the federal government to expand Internet access in the state. Public Service Commissioner Brandon Presley said AT&T initially denied requests last week for records related to work it completed in the state to provide fixed wireless service access through the Connect America Fund. Earlier this week, he spoke with our Desiree Frazier, saying his office is charged with ensuring the work is done. These $280 million, uh, the public service commissions in each state plays uh, the role of oversight and for accountability on a state level basis uh, to ensure that the federal funds are spent the way that they're uh, intended. Uh, and so our job in this is oversight of, of the funds that have been awarded by the federal government. AT&T has been awarded that $283 million to make uh, internet service available to 133,000 locations or homes of businesses in the state. And as a part of our oversight, I have some very basic questions related to uh, AT&T's uh, actual provision of this service, the, the whether or not it's been made available, uh, how many complaints have come in related to this type of service. And so I had sent them a, uh, an informal request uh, asking them uh, how many customers of the 133,000 houses that the service has been made available to, how many of those customers have signed up for the service. Uh, they responded to me that they would not answer that question. They, were, they, they contend that they're not required to answer any that type of question. Um, I asked them to clarify, um, it was, were they in fact refusing that information? And of course, the, they said that they were not required to um Submitted, and so I was forced to issue a subpoena to the company uh, for answers to that question. Also, I wanted uh, in the subpoena, we're asking for how many customers were told uh, that this service was available at their home, only to find out later from the company that the service is not, in fact, available. Can you confirm that the construction has taken place? Well, that's that's a part of what we're in in the middle of uh, looking into now. Uh, uh, there's no doubt that in some instances uh, they have made construction in some areas. I've, I've personally been to some of those locations. Uh, uh, so there has been some construction. The question is whether or not the uh, uh, this this claim that they have uh, completed their obligation is true. Uh, the fact that some construction has gone on does not mean that uh, all of the all of the construction has been complete. Uh, you know, they, these are these are 133 locations, 133,000 locations in the state, uh, and so there are the things that are questions that are still out there. Uh, there's no doubt some construction has happened. I've personally seen that. I've seen when they cut the ribbons at some of these places, uh, but in other places, I had a lady today in Octavia Hall County that contacted me. Uh, 
she said she contacted the company, asked for uh, the, the exact service, the exact service that these federal funds were to go to. She was told by the company, yes, service is available at your home. She gets out, the technician gets there and tells her, we're sorry, the signal's too weak, you can't get it. Uh, and we have multiple examples of that. Mississippi is struggling with broadband issues, trying to get broadband to rural areas, especially in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts on having to go through this to find out what's going on? Well, I think that it's um, uh, the, the coronavirus pandemic has just proven the need that is out there. And I think it also raises a question. Uh, we've seen people who have contacted my office and have talked to me about broadband access that never have, have necessarily prior to this pandemic had the, a, a very great need because their children weren't home trying to learn. And now they've been forced to uh, educate their children from home. Uh, and then when you couple that with the fact that you've got the largest carrier in the nation, the largest carrier in the state, largest telecom company in the state, uh, that's received $283 million to put in a service that supposedly is providing service to 133,000 houses, and yet we have so many people who can't get access at all, it begs the natural question of, what in fact is out there and what in fact are Mississippians able to take advantage of? And, you know, I've got multiple examples where individuals in our state have their location uh, was supposed to be served with Internet service. And they don't, in fact, when they call, they're not able to get it. That's that's not only troublesome. That's, uh, you know, that's uh, that flies in the face of why these dollars were given out. Could these be isolated incidents? Possibly so, but we're going to find out because that's our duty under the under the law and it's, and it's providing oversight. Uh, I have a hard time believing if you live in an area of Mississippi and you have no internet access and you had an option out there for uh, even a service like this, it's only 10 megabits down and one megabit up, uh, that you would not try to take that service in the middle of a pandemic. So you've got, we've got a need. The jury's returned a verdict on that. We definitely have a need. The question is, uh, are these dollars being put to use like they were intended to five years ago before we had ever heard of coronavirus, before we'd ever heard of a pandemic, and before we had this uh, flip of a switch to, you know, distance education and telecommuting and things like that. And this is a, this is simply about accountability for millions of dollars that have been given to AT&T that they've been subsidized by the government, federal government, not the state government, the federal government, uh, to go out and put in service and holding them account for what that they um, say they'll do. I'm far away that they have such a problem. They forced us to issue a subpoena for very basic answers to basic questions. I mean, you got $283 million. We've asked you for three questions, and we have to issue a subpoena to get, uh, to get those answered. Their attitude seems to me to be, uh, we'll take all the money we can get and answer as few of the questions as we have to. And that's unacceptable. Public Service Commissioner Brandon Presley with our Desiree Frazier. Coming up, how student leaders at two of Mississippi's public universities are serving as liaisons between administration and the student body in an effort to keep campus safe during a pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Blues Archive is a collection of sound recordings, photographs, memorabilia. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We get researchers and blues fans from all over the world. Over 70,000 audio recordings in the Blues Archive. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A close eye is being turned to college campuses this fall as students are resuming in-person learning. College students usually exhibit a level of independence and freedom, often not reserved for their K-12 through peers, which has led to concerns from health officials over the potential for widespread community transmission of COVID-19 on university campuses. They worry the social element of college life could lead to behaviors and practices that could cause outbreaks. To combat this, university administrators are leaning on student leadership to develop and communicate safety plans. Sarah Helen Skelton is a senior at Mississippi State University and chief of staff of the Student Association. She says at MSU, a joint task force is being utilized to coordinate efforts between student leadership and school administration. They've been meeting since um, it would have been right after, maybe a few weeks after spring break, kind of when all the students got sent home. They kind of immediately created this task force to come up with a plan and document to um, implement on campus. And they've just been continually meeting every week um, to give updates and, you know, discuss everything regarding COVID. Yeah. Is this, so this is a fluid process. It's, it's changing. Um, we get updates every week from our president, Tyler, and it, it's, everything's changing pretty much every week. And, you know, just as we get more information and um, people are adjusting. If someone doesn't follow the rules, they're not social distancing, they're not wearing a mask, um, other infractions, what is the process? What happens to them? So I believe the teachers actually have the authority to ask someone to leave their classroom if they're not wearing a mask, just because it's not following perceived university guidelines in any way. Um, and I actually haven't heard of any examples of that. So that's been really a blessing from Mississippi State that people have been willing to follow the procedures and, you know, do it best for everyone. But um, they can be asked to leave the class. But thankfully, all classes are um, offering an online option as well. So a lot of people are attending those. Is the task force also involved with the football program, football games, or is that a separate entity? So the task force is kind of like the umbrella for all the COVID committees. And so, yes, it does handle, you know, the tickets and things like that. But then also there's a smaller committee that talks about it as well. And there have been changes in regard to how many people can be in the stadium, which I would think is presenting its own challenges because everybody wants to go to the game. Yes, I know just from a student perspective, it's just been kind of crazy. We have um, our vice president sits on the committee that's been deciding student tickets, and it's 2,500 students can go into the game, uh, and they're going to do like a lottery system, so you can log on like 15 minutes before, and if you're lucky, you get picked to sit in it. Um, the 2,500 does include the band, and then um, right now the student association is looking into, but we it may or may not for the seniors to be able to go um, since, you know, it is our last year here. But um, for the most part, it's just a lottery. So I think that's going to be big amongst students trying to get into those games. 
So a lot is going on. You you guys are busy. Uh, let me ask you finally, do you feel like the students are being fairly represented in the decision-making? I, I really do feel that the students are being fairly represented. We have a very diverse student association from our executive board and then all of the committees underneath it. So I feel like we get a good diverse opinion on everything um, regarding COVID and the student perspective. Because obviously we can't, pull 22,000 students on every issue. So I think it's very important that we have the representation from all the different people so we can get a good idea and represent them as fairly as possible because that's, like, what we were elected to do. Um, yes, I really do feel like the students are being fairly represented. We have options for them to contact us in many ways if they feel like anything we're doing is not beneficial for the students and we'll respond and help. Um, and I think for the most part, everyone has, you know, obviously nothing's ideal right now, but... I think we've been doing the best we can for the students. Sarah Helen Skelton is the Mississippi State University Chief of Staff for the Student Association. Thank you so much for being with us. Best of luck as you continue in this semester. Thank you. I had a great time. At the University of Mississippi, Associated Student Body President Joshua Mannery, also a senior, is working to keep the student body educated. He tells our Desiree Frazier more about the efforts to keep students safe and informed. We've had a public education campaign that I think, and this is widespread, every university is doing it, but that's just been putting out messaging and encouraging students to be as safe as possible and work to protect the community. Um, I think we are just now instituting a random um, random mass testing. Uh, we've signed a contract with a, um, a provider who will who's able to give us a X amount of tests every week. And so we're working to control the asymptomatic spread. You know, we have a team who's doing a lot of um, investing into finding out like what are the hotspots in the area, if any, and what we can do to kind of curb that before it gets any worse than it already is. Well, how do you feel about being on a campus and trying to, as president, work to make a difference in helping students to protect themselves and faculty and staff and um, the different uh, feelings about it? Because just like in society, you're going to have a cross-section of opinions on campus. I mean, it's what I signed up for. You know, so I never complain about it, and I never, you know, I never want to give off the impression that I that I don't want to be on campus and everything. Now, regardless of how anybody felt about whether we should come back or not, how that should look, you know, it's here now, and all we can really do is adapt and you know try to keep as many people safe as possible. And so, if I'm if I'm helping keep one community on campus safe, you know that that that's something positive for me. You know, I'll take that. Well, we're hearing that students tend to gather off campus socially, and that's where there are large groups. Do you find that frustrating because you really don't have any say off campus? So how do you reach students and encourage them not to gather in large groups and socialize at local bars and eateries? I mean, well, I think we, and I, I don't think we've done this fully, and so I think that's why we've seen some of that. I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of people here are freshmen. I mean, most, you know, a lot of freshmen came here um, and they wanted to have that student experience. And so we brought them here without, you know, helping them buy into our kind of shared vision. 
of this community. Like we, we kind of expected them to just immediately fall in line, um, and you know buy into this campaign, right? Um, but their freshmen, you know, this for a lot of them is their first first time being on campus, being at the university, and so like we can't just expect them to comply. And then you have a lot of older students too, who, you know, they already they already have parts of their student experience taken from them. So I think the mindset is, you know, we're gonna do, we're gonna have fun. Like I don't know how you don't expect us to have fun. And so for me, and I'm still working on it. And it's not, I don't have a, a concrete answer, but I'm just trying to figure out what, you know, what language kind of permeates through that mindset. Joshua Mannering, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. No problem. Lafayette County, where the University of Mississippi is located, had the second highest COVID-19 incidence rate in Mississippi during the first week of September. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.